Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his dues in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. So, I mean, I was doing it all myself. Presented by Crosley. Amplify your style. Here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Fabulous new intro and audio courtesy of the Motor Racing Network. We thank those guys. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network presented by Crosley. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in. Pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. Today's guest, nationally recognized NHRA top fuel drag racing champion, Boasting a career that included 10 NHRA National Event Championship wins, 20 IHRA National Event Championship wins, and four Top Fuel World Championships. He is an honored member of the NHRA Hall of Fame, North Carolina Racing Hall of Fame, and Racing Diecast Hall of Fame. In fact, the second driver to ever exceed 300 miles per hour in the quarter mile. Boy, that is fast. And he's kind of a big deal. It's Doug Herbert. Say hi to Mike Wallace. <laughs> What's and, up, Mike? And he is a big deal. Ask him. <laughs> I'm a legend in my own mind. That's right. There Aren't you we go. All? Well, it's wonderful to have you on today, Doug. And the greatest part about for- this show right now is that we are taking people what we call back in time a little bit. Uh, we know who Doug Herbert is or the race fans. Not everybody. So we got to tell everybody who you are, what you do throughout the show. 
But, you know, what did you do be- before you were Dugzilla? That's a famous name. Yeah. That was his nickname. We're going to hit on that in a little bit. But uh, tell me about the early days. I think you grew up in California. I mean, were you always involved in racing, or is it something that just happened? To- let's, let's start early on, early as you can remember. I mean, the first time I remember racing is when I had a big wheel and my neighbor had a big wheel. Mm-hmm. And so we would race, you know, I mean, it's like I was a kid and I loved racing. You know, my dad was actually uh, one of the original hot rodding pioneers after World War II. Uh, you know, the guys in Southern California, that was kind of the birthplace of hot rodding. And uh, he he was one of those guys. And, and what uh, was your dad's name? So my Chet Herbert. Okay. Yep, Chet was a good old hot rodder. There was probably a dozen guys that really started modern-day hot rodding. It was, you know, Vic Edelbrock and Ed Iskadirian and Clay Smith and, you know, these Southern California guys. That was kind of where hot rodding. So NASCAR started in the South, right, with Moonshine. Hot rodding started in Southern California. I was was going to say. But just the opposite side of the coast, you know. As big as NASCAR Uh, is in the South, that's right. I mean, when you think of of hot rods and and – Cars that go straight and go fast, you think of California. You know what I mean? That's where it all kind of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was drag racing and, and dry lakes racing. They raced at uh, El Mirage and Bonneville, and, that, you know, that was what they did out there. And so, at any rate, growing up in Southern California, and uh, but my dad was kind of a little bit out of racing by the time I came around. I was a late bloomer for him. And uh, so, you know, I when I kind of came around, I guess something, whatever drove him to racing back when he was a kid drove me to racing. So when I was probably, gosh, I don't know, 10 years old or something, I started bicycle uh, BMX racing and uh, raced motorcycles, you know, motocross. And then I figured out, okay, I'm not really built for motocross because I'm a little bit too big. I was even too big back then. And so that didn't work out. And uh, I got a job working at Eliminator Boats out in California, which was a really neat place to work. I learned a lot. I was a kid, like 14 years old. And uh, working at this boat shop, I talked Bob Leach, a guy that owned Eliminator Boats, into selling me a boat for cost, which was like, I think it was like 300 bucks or something. And uh, so I had a 19-foot tunnel haul, and I talked my dad into buying an outboard engine from Mercury. We had some kind of deal with Mercury Racing Engine at Eliminator. So we uh, we went boat racing, and we did that for a while, and that was fun. My mom finally put the kaputs to that when we came home from a race one time, and we had a boat trailer but no boat. <laughs> my, mom, my mom was like, well, where'd the boat go? My dad says, well, we left it out the lake. And, and my mom said, oh, well, why'd you leave it out there? He said, well, it's actually on the bottom of the lake. We're going to go back and try and find it here later. So, and and uh, my mom didn't think it was nearly as funny. So that was uh, that was about it for my boat racing days. And uh, so uh, we moved on. And then, uh, you know, I, when I, uh, by the time I turned 16, I'd already been working on this hot rod. I had a, uh, like a 70 Camaro with a big block. You know, it was kind of a hot rod deal. Tunnel ram, two, you know, dual poly four barrels on the thing. And uh, so by the time I turned 16, I had this hot rod and I got into cars because that was that was an easier thing to be into at the time. And, uh, you know, before that, it was boats or bicycles or whatever. I always had to find somebody to give me a ride to the racetrack or to the lake to go boating. And with the car now, I could drive myself and I'd go right down to the drag strip, Orange County International Raceway or Los Angeles International Raceway or whatever, and uh, do a little bit of racing. And that I kind of figured out pretty quick that I really liked drag racing. And it flashed back to when I was a kid. I was like, I was probably, I don't know, 10 years old or something. We went to 
drag races from uh, my aunt actually owned a uh, a publication called Drag News. And so we'd go to the drag races with her and, uh, you know, occasionally my dad might come along. And I remember sitting in Big Daddy Don Garlett's car. I was probably 10 or 12 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, I want to race Big Daddy when I grow up. (laughs) And, you know, as it ended up, I got to race Big Daddy. I got to beat Big Daddy, and that was uh, just pretty cool. Everything just kind of started coming along about that time. I was 16, just working hard. I had uh, I went into business with my dad, and we had a automotive racing parts business, and uh, and of course he'd been doing that since the 1940s forever. He he was actually the guy, you know. Now if you go pretty much any racing engine, right, you go to NASCAR and they all have roller cams, roller in, you know, roller tappet valve train. Well, my dad actually was the first guy. He invented the roller tappet camshaft in the automotive racing engine for the automotive racing application so it was a pretty big deal i'm gonna interject uh, with you just for a second on that story bobby yeah. allison told me a story well i told a group of people a story he contributed a lot of his early success to your father because of that roller tap at camshaft he says somehow they met each other somewhere i don't remember where it was and all of a sudden your dad decided to sponsor bobby by putting a, a roller tap at camshaft in his motor and says that baby hauled the mail from that point forward <laughs> Yeah, that, and that's neat telling, you know, Bobby telling that story is he called, I think, you know, he called out to California. He heard that my dad had these cams that were really, really good. And uh, he called out there and talked to my dad. My dad said, boy, you know, I really like it. And he was some uh, track champion down in Miami. This is before he even was Alabama. I mean, he was in, in Miami. And uh, some track champion at some little track down there. And my dad said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out and let's see what it does. And you know, from Bobby and, and Mike, you heard this right from Bobby's mouth too. It, he said, man, I went the next couple of years. I never even had to race anybody. My, you know, my car just ran so much better. All I had to do was worry about my chassis going through the corner. I always had everybody um, covered on the straightaway. So that was pretty neat. And growing up, that was another neat thing. When Bobby came to California, he always gave my dad a couple passes to Riverside or Ontario, you know, when they were racing out there. So I, you know, I got to go to some races out there and meet Bobby Allison and Donnie and, and all that as I was a kid. So just really had a neat time being around uh, being around racing and, and being excited about it. And I never really knew that I would be able to be a big-time racer, but I wanted to be. Um, and then about 1985, uh, I was we were selling parts, and I went over to pick up some parts at Arius Racing Engines. I don't know. Arius made, uh, uh, you know, like mostly drag racing engines, but tractor pull engines, big supercharged Hemi engines. And uh, I was over there, and he had a Nick Arias had a dragster sitting in the shop, and I said, "Man, what are you doing with that dragster?" He said, "Well, I'm thinking about selling it. Why don't you buy it from me?" And I was like, "I said, well, I, you know, I'd like to do that. How much you want for it?" And he told me, and I said, "Well, I can afford that." He goes, "Well, that doesn't it doesn't come with an engine or transmission or anything. That's just the dragster, and I'll give you a trailer too." I thought, "Oh, okay. Well, I don't have enough money for that." Uh, I said, "Can I make a deal with you to?" borrow an engine or rent an engine or something like that and he said yeah i'll do that i'll do that deal with you so 1985 i went drag racing so uh, why, why did he like you enough to loan you uh, basically loan you a motor on credit if you want to say it that way what had you guys done business and knew each other well already or what, what he knew that? my dad for yeah, he knew my dad for 50 years probably you know they were old old racers from back in the 1950s and so uh, you know, and I think he liked my enthusiasm. 
And uh, so, yeah, I was lucky enough to, to – I bought the car from Arius, and then he either borrowed or loaned me an engine or rented me an engine or something. I can't even remember. Uh, but it was basically he let me use an engine is kind of what it came down to. And that really is kind of what got me started in 1985. And, and where was that, that uh, first dragster race at? Do you remember? I guess that's when back in the day you called them dragsters, right? Or you still call them? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Still dragsters, yeah. I went to, actually, believe it or not, I went to Famoso Dragway in Bakersfield, California, which Bakersfield's kind of a famous West Coast drag racing place. And uh, that was where I did my first uh, drag racing, got my dragster license and all that stuff, and went 200 miles an hour in a dragster. And, man, I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I'm 200 miles per hour. 200 miles an hour. You know, Bakersfield's a a famous place, Jeff. It really is. And that were country songs. Buck uh, Owens and the Buckaroos are from Bakersfield. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Wallace (laughs) won a uh, truck race in Bakersfield at Mesa Marin Speedway. Is it Kevin Harvick from Bakersfield? Mesa Marin, no kidding. Yeah, Kevin Harvick is from Bakersfield. Yeah. yeah. Doug Herbert races race, first uh, race there. Amazing place. That's right. That's right. We used to race up there at Lake Ming, which was right up the street from Mesa Marin. We'd race at Lake Ming during the day, and then at night we'd go down to Mesa Marin and watch the circle track racing. Well, there we go. We pulled pulled our whole careers <laughs> or started our careers all into one there. <laughs> <laughs> See, it all circles back around, Mike. It all circles around. Yeah. So tell me about yeah. those early days of uh, dragster racing, drag racing, uh, the the engine sat in front of the driver is that when you started driving cars or was it in behind the driver mike i'm not that old okay well well, you know you you you, got to remember that i i know drag racing through you so we've you know you got one of those old dragsters in your shop so i thought well maybe that was a memorabilia piece or something but uh i do yeah you know what i love that car we got a picture of you sitting in that thing but it was that car was the old, it was called the Winds, uh, the Winds Spoiler. The Winds Spoiler was sponsored by Winds Chemical Company out in California. And it was, uh, it had the quickest elapsed time in history back in 1966. So that was before I was even born. So not long, but a little before I was born. So, Jeff, and, do you know uh, what I'm talking about? The the dragsters with the with engine the mo- in front of the driver? Absolutely. Which, okay. which, when you think about it, is not a great idea. No, it's really, when you sit in one of those things, it's a really stupid idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that was kind of yeah. like one of those deals. That had to come together through a bar conversation, drinking about <laughs> nine shots into a bottle. Well, I ain't going to strap myself in behind this motor that blows flames and see what it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's I mean, a fire guys, going on inside know, that. Mickey Thompson, yeah, those old front engine dragsters, they were called slingshot dragsters, and, uh, you know, those old guys like Mickey Thompson and and my dad and, uh, you know, Don Garlitz kind of helped perfect those things and, and, you know, the mongoose and the snake and all that, and then, and I don't know the exact date, it was around 1970, uh, Don Garlitz, Big Daddy just about lost his whole, you know, he, he about lost everything, I mean, he about got killed when the front engine car it blew up the clutch came out of the car and and uh, took part of his foot off Yikes. and he decided he was going to build a rear engine dragster and put the engine out and back instead of in the front and then that kind of changed the history of drag racing and everything started going to rear engine cars by about the mid 70s there was almost all the front engine cars were gone and the first time i ever went to a drag race i went to high school in warner robins georgia we had a drag a drag strip there yeah. uh, the warner robins dragway and it was big daddy don garlitz and Don the Snake Prudhomme, and did you ever race there? Did you ever race there, Doug? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
D- Doug has been about every racetrack in the country, I think. I, I mean, reckon, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I <laughs> well, talked back, to... you know, in the early 90s, so so fast forward a little bit. So 1990, I was racing my top alcohol dragster. It was like a 220-mile-an-hour dragster back then. And I, every week, this magazine would come, National Dragster, and I would look at it, and they'd have posted in there the prize money. They'd post the prize money, like the top fuel prize money was, let's say, back then, $20,000 to win the race. And the alcohol dragster prize money was like $2,000 to win. And I thought shoot man those top deal guys they're making all the money well i didn't really realize that it cost about 20 times more to race one <laughs> so i i i decided i'm gonna go race one of those top deal cars that's where all the money is well uh i don't know about that that it's that old thing mike you and i have talked about it before how do you make a million dollars in racing is you start out with, with about two. 10 <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> yeah so i decided okay i'm gonna go top deal racing this is big time and uh uh, so in 1991, went out and went ba- to Bakersfield and got my top fuel license and started racing top fuel in 1991 and really didn't have very good luck. It was just a tough year. It was really a big learning experience. But then at the end of 91, I was really determined. I had put a pretty decent team together, and we went out the first race in 1992 and set the world's uh, set the record, the NHRA uh, a lapse time record and had the quickest run ever in history and just started out 1992 really really good won my first uh top field championship 1992 and and from kind of springboarded things uh you know and, and getting going in top field race and then at that time i'd moved to north carolina and so like everybody here was looking at me with three heads like wait what is those things with the little tires in the front and the big tires in the back you know mm-hmm. and uh but we have it was fun and, and really educating all the people around uh, the Southeast again about, you know, top fuel drag racing and, uh, you know, which was popular back in the sixties and seventies. But I think that there was not that many people to pull for around here and the, you know, they weren't racing at Charlotte Motor Speedway anymore. And so I think it was just, you know, they had to go to either Bristol or Richmond or Atlanta to go see a top fuel race. So it kind of, uh, you know, it, but I, I think I helped kind of maybe bring that back into some excitement to get around here. Well, I want to hear when we come back from break uh, how you ended up here in North Carolina to start with, how what brought you over here, and when Jeff brings us back or takes us out. We'll, we'll do that. It. We'll do that. So much more to come. We're talking to NHRA Hall of Famer Doug Herbert. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Waddles. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, NHRA Hall of Famer, Doug Herbert is on the line. Take it away, Mike. Well, Doug, as we went to break, we were talking about how you came from California to North Carolina. And that is a a question we have for all our guests, basically. First of all, it's it's a two-part question. What prompted you to move from California to North Carolina? That's about as far as cross-country as you can get. And then how did you get here? What did you drive? And it, was your whole possessions in the back of a pickup truck, or did you have a trailer yeah. included? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I had a trailer, too. Exactly what happened is I went to uh, Gainesville in 1991, went to the races, and when I first got involved in top field racing, my dad told me, he said, I don't care if you do it, but you know, you got to be back at work on Monday morning and go to work. And I said, <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. You know, my dad, he was a tough, he was a tough old bird. And uh, so I raced at Gainesville. I went home, flew on the red eye, got home, went to work, 
and when I got to work, all my stuff was in a in a box on my desk. And my dad, he says, well, you're going to have to decide. He said, uh, you know, you're going to have to decide. Are you going racing or are you working? And I said, well, Dad, I'm, I'm doing both. I mean, I got everything. I had everything running smooth here at the shop, and, and I had all my guys that were working for me doing a good job. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I need to be here every second babysitting, but, you know, that's what I'm doing. He said, now, you need to just decide. Are you going racing or working? I said, well, I'm going racing. He said, well, you know, good luck with that. He said, you're never going to beat Big Daddy or you're never going to beat the snake. And something right then just fired me up. And I was like, you know what? I am going to beat the snake and I am going to beat the mongoose and I am going to beat Big Daddy. And I I would just went on a mission and uh, I loaded everything in my uh, in my trailer and my truck and I drove the truck. I hit Interstate 40 West or 40 East and Hit it across and been here, done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was it. I showed up and I had everything that I had was in my truck and trailer, and uh, started up a little uh, racing parts business here, and uh, just started working. You know, so, I, I used to say, "Well, I work only half days, twelve hours." You know. Yeah. So how do you how do you move from the West Coast? I mean, I'm intrigued by people's careers and business moves and all that. How do you move to the East Coast? We'll just call this the East Coast. And then say, I'm going to start up a little parts business. I mean, it's just because you did that on the West Coast, you knew how to do it, yep. or how you just yeah. just did it. No, I, that's what I was doing with my dad out on the West Coast. And you know, one of my jobs after I worked at Eliminator Boats, being a kid, was I worked at a at a speed shop, at a hot rod shop out in California. So I had experience doing that. And then I went in with my dad. He was in the camshaft business, but. I got in there and we started a, a parts racing parts business, a mail or racing parts business, and uh, you know got it built up pretty good. And, and uh, you know we we're of course you know advertising all the national publications, and we were shipping out truckloads of parts every day, and you know hundreds of packages to different customers all around the world, helping them keep their race cars running. And when I moved to Charlotte, it was actually perfect because now, you know the East Coast, the Southeast especially was the center of racing i mean i remember when i moved to charlotte back then if you went down the street and you passed 10 houses you'd be shocked if you didn't see a, dra- a race car sitting at least one of those driveways you know and in southern california there was none of that there was no race cars anymore all the racetracks had dried up and everything had, it was done but here in uh, in you know north carolina there was racing like crazy and so it was the timing was good and my business kind of started booming ended up you know ended up with almost 100 employees and and shipping truckloads of parts out uh, every day all over the world. So, you know, it was a really good move moving to North Carolina. Which is kind of an and interesting my story. my dad fired me up. Yep. Um, because when you think, you know, when you think of NASCAR, right? All right, so you want to be a movie star, you move to Hollywood. You want to you be a country star, you move to Nashville, right? You want to drive for NASCAR, you, you move to Charlotte, North Carolina. You don't really think about that with drag racing uh, as much is there is there one hub drag racing hub in america is it in florida or is it in california well it was in california and now it's definitely in uh, indianapolis. Indianapolis. indianapolis indianapolis is kind of the hub now yeah and you know and when i moved here i didn't see i didn't necessarily distinguish between drag racing and you know nascar circle track racing whatever it was just racing to me because i was in the racing business and charlotte was a racing capital and it still is. And, uh, you know, that was really what, you know, what, what brought me here. And, and it helped my parts business, my racing parts business. I was selling parts to all the NASCAR teams and, 
And uh, so I knew, you know, I had a little bit of uh, my toe in, the, you know, circle track water, water as well. I'll never forget, you'll think this is funny, Mike's old Richard Broom. I don't know if you remember Richard Broom. Sure. Yeah. Oh, Richard Broom, he came over to my shop. I hadn't been here in Charlotte more than six months or so. And he came in. He said, Dad, son, you need to build you a circle track car. These damn guys around here, they don't know what dragster is. And I, said, I said, no, I like, you know, I like the circle. I, I like the drag race and I like the, you know, nitromethane, man. I mean, there's nothing like it. And he goes, I know I lo- I'm with you, too. I love the drag racing, but uh, there ain't no money in drag racing. You need to build your circle track car. And I, <laughs> that was the best advice I was ever given that I didn't take. You know, in 1991, that would have, that was actually probably been a good time to get into NASCAR racing, but. I I just uh, I dug my heels in and decided I wanted to stay drag racing, which I guess that was the way. So, Doug, how jazzed were you when Bruton Smith decided to build the Z-Max Dragway? Oh, I was just so excited. I was really pumped up, and uh, when I found out about that, I was over there during all their media days while they were building it, and uh, was just really, really excited. I think Charlotte has been a, I think it's been a, a good location for that track, and uh, there's one of the biggest spectator grandstands in any drag racing track is here at Z-Max Dragway in, in Charlotte. And uh, many of the races that they have here have been sold out. So I think it's worked out pretty good. I think there's a lot of uh, excitement about it. And, you know, they they spend an incredible amount of money building the most premier drag racing facility in the world right here in Charlotte. Right. So they it call is. it the Bellagio of, of uh, uh, yeah. racetracks. <laughs> what about the four wide nationals that they hold here? How, how is there any other place in America where they race, they line them up and race four wide? Well, they're they, uh, Bruton also built one out in Las Vegas. So they have a four wide track out in Vegas, but this one in Charlotte was the first one. Um, you know, in the, of the modern era. And, uh, you know, that first year they had the four-wide drag race, I went to the final round and actually had a pretty good shot at winning the race with uh, just kind of a uh, of a crew and a team that I put together at the week before the race to go out and run. And and uh, we ended up didn't win the race, but we had a pretty good show, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and uh, I think the four-wide is pretty neat. And, and I agree with Bruton's uh his vision of let's give something different you know there's something different about going there and seeing it and i realize everybody doesn't like the four wide thing it's a lot to take in but it is something different it's testing the drivers because you've got to be paying attention to not just one car in the other lane to three other cars and the crew chiefs that test them because you got to pick between four lanes instead of just two lanes and i think there's a lot to it and and uh, I, I think it gives the fans a little more excitement and something different to look at think about and, uh, you know, I, I yeah. know. I, no, a few times I've been out there, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. The first time I went out there, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, the earth shook. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? I, yeah. I, was, I felt like an earthquake. It really did. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I did a thing out in Sonoma. We were racing out there in, uh, in Sonoma uh, years ago, and we did a thing where they put one of those Geiger meters or whatever it's called in the ground. And because they said, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, they shake the ground and they figured out that the actual movement of the earth was equivalent to like a seven point something on the Richter scale, <laughs> a top fuel car. So, I mean, it's actually true. They do shake the earth. So yeah. you're exactly right, Jeff Kent. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Well, some people I, I told you were going to, I was talking to this week about you being on the show and they go, why would you have a drag racer on a show that says fast car to NASCAR? And Doug answered a little bit, but I want to add to it. You know, he's selling parts to NASCAR teams. So there's a, this common tie. And he's a racer. Racers are... Right. But at one time, too, Doug's wife, Mimi, 
was a NASCAR team owner. She owned an Xfinity Series team and a Cup Series team. So he's totally diverse in all of that in this racing, aren't you, Doug? Yeah. Yeah, that's well, right. We're, we're nothing yeah, if we're between... not diverse. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Oh my God, Jeff Kent, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's one of the one of the original, probably female owners in NASCAR. So yeah, pretty pretty neat. She's a she's a neat gal, and and uh, I'm sure uh, you know I'm a lucky guy. That's for so, sure. So through that drag racing, I uh, I didn't know you, of course, many years ago, and you were famous for a, a slogan. Uh, on your dragster, and you were called Dougzilla. And I noticed you were part of the uh, Diecast Hall of Fame, and I can assume that's where that come from. Tell everybody what Dougzilla is or was or how it became. <laughs> well, you know, okay, so, I mean, uh, it, it was fun. So Dougzilla, it was an event that happened in Reading, Pennsylvania in 2002, uh, we pulled up the starting line, and in drag racing, there's a little bit of, of uh, you know, game playing or strategy or whatever you want to call it. When you pull up to the starting line and you stage, you know, do you start your car first? Do you start your car second? Do you do you back up from your burnout quickly? Do you back up from your burnout slow? I like backing up from my burnout quickly so I can look at the other car. I got to look at the person I'm going to get ready to beat, you know. And so, uh, you know, back up. I pull up there, and you've got what we call a pre-stage light and then a stage light. And when both cars are staged, that's when the starter at any moment can, uh, can flip the start switch. And you know, when they flip the start switch, obviously that's when you go. Well, I was racing Clay Milliken at the time. And so Clay, uh, you know, I was kind of the IHRA King, uh, during the nineties. And then Clay came along after I, I never actually raced Clay at IHRA. Uh, he came along and he was doing pretty good at IHRA and, uh, I had a car. I didn't race at the IHRA, but I had a two car team. One of my cars raced at IHRA and it was every time my car, my IHRA car raced clay, they always kind of did something that I didn't like. They were slow. They kind of, you know, they kind of hung us out a little bit. I felt like, and, and so, um, so I'm racing clay and I went over and told him, I go, Hey, you know, just so you know, you're the new kid on the block here go up there and just stage your car. Don't play around. And he didn't say anything. So I thought he understood what I was talking about. Well, we went up there, we raced, you know, we're burnout. We go up, we're, we're, we light the light and, uh, he lights his top light and it's time to go light the second light. So I, you know, I turn my fuel system on, I let the clutch out, I'm getting ready to go in and he never goes in. So I thought, huh? So I turned my fuel system back down. I pushed the clutch back in. And I decided I am going to sit here and wait until he stages. Well, these cars are very critical because they're burning a lot of fuel. Uh, in one quarter mile run, they burn 15 gallons of nitromethane in you know in a four second run. So I mean they burn a lot of fuel, and that fuel is also ballast on the front of the car. And there's no cooling system on the car, so they sit there and get incredibly hot. So there's a lot of reasons why sitting there is not a good idea. <laughs> but we were sitting there and we sat there. And I don't know the exact amount of time, but it was something like two minutes we sat there. And finally, the NHRA starter uh, figured out that our cars were going to blow up. There's no way that they were going to make it to the finish line. And so they shut us off on the starting line. Well, when they shut us off, I got out of the car, and I was pretty fired up. So I went over to have a little talk with Clay. And uh, we're actually, we're talking. I'm, I was pissed, but we're, you know, we're, we're communicating. And then 
one of his guys came up and hit me from behind. Well, you know, I was. Uh, You're not the smallest guy. Uh, I don't got to right? be asked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't got to be asked. Right. And the guy turned around. And the guy says, "You know, I go, I go. What the hell?" And he goes, "Bring it on." <laughs> so I'm one of those guys. Like, well, you don't got to ask me twice. Bring it on. So I, I just charged him, and uh, you know, it was fists were flying, and then. All of his crew guys were started jumping on me, and of course I'm hitting them, and so it was kind of like, you know, it was a big deal. Well, then, anyways, all this whole thing, the race got rained out right after that. So guess what? NHRA didn't have anything to play besides this burn down. So they started showing the burn down, and you know they're showing all this stuff going on, and uh, uh, so this guy Berserko Bob, I don't know if you ever remember Berserko Bob. He's, the Zirka Bob came up with the name. Somebody was saying, Oh man, Herbert looked like Godzilla with the, all those crew guys were jumping on him. And he was just batting them off. And then the Zirka Bob says, no, it was Dougzilla, Dougzilla. And so that Dougzilla just kind of happened. And, and so that I got, I got nicknamed Dougzilla. That makes and, sense. Uh, yeah. 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 And so we had a lot of fun with it actually over the next few years, we rent cars with Dougzilla on the car and, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun doing that. We raised money for a bunch of charities with Dougzilla, and I helped my friend Billy Williams got really injured in a crash, and we, you know, donate a lot of money to help his family. And so, there was, you know, Dougzilla is, is big and strong, but also very nice uh, to help others. You know? <laughs> so, Beautiful. Yeah. We, we, yeah. Well, so let's anyways, let's come back and talk story. about Dougzilla and a few other things. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to NHRA <laughs> Hall of Famer Doug Herbert. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. Today's guest, NHRA Hall of Famer Doug Herbert, is on the line. Mike, take it away. Doug, we were just talking about Doug Zilla, the, the creation of Doug Zilla, and uh, what, what a cool story. You were mentioning you guys did a lot of charity things or a few charity events, but and being a member of the Diecast Hall of Fame, I'm reading here, that car or cars that you had, that was a pretty big diecast revenue maker for a while, wasn't it? Because it was and explain what Dougzilla yeah. looked like. It wasn't it, it was just you describe it, Doug. What Dougzilla looked like? Dougzilla looked like, you know, a lot like Godzilla, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of a monster really looking, big, with big old teeth, you know, and big old claws and stuff, you know. And uh, yeah, Doug's love was 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 pretty neat. And uh, your your listeners could go to YouTube and just uh, put on there the birth of Doug Zilla. There's a video on there, a pretty neat video that they made about Doug Zilla and how it happened and how you know Clay and I have ended up becoming pretty good buddies over the years. You know, we weren't very good friends that day at all. In fact, we <laughs> really didn't like each other. But we've started to. Uh, you know, we, we, we like each other a lot now. We're good buddies. And so, oh. it's, you know, that, that video, uh, the birth of Dougzilla kind of goes and explains a little bit about all that. So that's pretty cool. Cool. So as the, uh, the birth of Dougzilla came, how did things progress on? Let's just say after that race, how, what, what time, what era was that in? What did, were you wrapping up your career yeah, was... in the middle of your career? What was that? And, and let me ask you a yeah. question first. You mentioned IHRA and NHRA, and I was poised a few questions before the show. What is the difference between those two series? Well, back in the, oh gosh, I guess 60s, uh, well, 
even back. Okay, so NHRA started in Southern California. Wally Parks was uh, working with Peterson Publishing, Robert Peterson, and Hot Rod Magazine and all that stuff. And they basically came together and started the NHRA, which is the National Hot Rod Association. And that was the kind of the premier sanctioning body of drag racing, you know, going along. Well, then in the 60s, Larry Carrier built Bristol Dragway. And they were going to have big NHRA race there, and they did. Uh, at the first Thunder Valley race, they had a, it was an NHRA race. Something happened, and Larry Carrier and NHRA had a falling out, and Larry decided that he was going to start his own sanctioning body, and so he started IHRA, the International Hot Rod Association. And, uh, you know, so kind of NHRA and IHRA went along kind of parallel for years, and, uh, you know, it was just a – it was just a – different sanctioning body i guess i guess it'd be like uh you know maybe cart and indycar or something like that it was you know they're kind of running races between the two i mean i i raced at ihra and nhra you know one weekend you race nhra the next weekend you race ihra you race the same car a lot of times you're racing the same drivers you know we had eddie hill or gene snow or kenny bernstein would go race ihra races as well so it was you know it was back and forth uh, uh you know but just two different sanctioning bodies so that's that's kind of you know, that's kind of the deal there. But the IHRA was a was an East Coast-based sanctioning body, and the NHRA was a West Coast-based sanctioning body. Gotcha. And in, in today's world, I mean, the NHRA is is kind of like the NASCAR of, uh, of drag racing, right? They're the bigger of the two series. Yeah. I You know, back in about the probably um, late 90s, early 2000s, the IHRA kind of changed their – uh, direction and they became kind of a racing entertainment instead of a racing competition uh, is I guess the best way to put it you know so they became where they they were booking in cars instead of you had to go there and qualify you were booked in and it just you know I, I that was that wasn't something that I was interested in I wanted to go for the competition and I wanted to go race the best and the fastest guys because that's what racing's all about is proving that you're the best on that given day and and uh you know it kind of changed to be uh you know kind of a show and i wasn't i was more interested in the competition than the show so that was kind of what put me away from it so personal achievements in regards to going down the quarter mile your father back in the day you started early in the show saying that you couldn't beat big daddy or the snake or the mongoose or whatever what what is a really fun highlight of your career? You can go back, look back, and go. I told you I could do it. What, what any? <laughs> I mean, I know there's a lot of them, but is there any particular thing that just kind of stands out and go? See, I told you I could do yeah. that. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, absolutely. The most fun race, or actually, probably the biggest race that I was ever fortunate enough to win was I won Pomona. You know, the NHRA, uh, you know, finals in Pomona. And uh, it was the only race because all my races that I won were were back east races. Well, I won I won Sonoma, but my dad wasn't there for some reason. So, anyways, Pomona, I won Pomona, and we beat you know Gary Selsey, we beat Joe Amato, like we beat the biggest guys and won the race. And I mean, it was a big deal. And uh, my dad was at the race, and we got winner circle pictures, and and it was just really really cool um, that 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 we did that. That was in two thousand one. Yeah, I think that was 2001. And my dad and I kind of, uh, you know, I left California and we kind of, you know, I told a little bit earlier about me and my dad kind of had a little bit of falling out. Well, that time in 2001, him being at the race, me winning the race, 
and he never said, "I know I'm proud of you" or, or anything. But I got the feeling that he did. And and uh, you know, my dad's story was he was in a wheelchair. He got polio when he was 20 years old, and so he had this motorcycle that he rode around the street, and they were hot riding and you know drag racing and all that. Well, then when he got polio, he couldn't drive that thing anymore. He couldn't drive any of the dragsters. He built all these cars and motorcycles, but he couldn't drive them. And I didn't realize how that kind of uh, – how that affected him, really, I guess. And so, anyways, when I came home from winning the race, I felt pretty good about it. You know, my dad was there. We had a good time. And Bobby Allison called me. And Bobby said, hey, let's go to lunch. Okay, so Bobby and I go to lunch. And he said, man, that was great. I was so proud of you winning that race. And, you know, I'm talking – here's Bobby Allison, you know, NASCAR superhero, telling me how he's proud of me. And I said, you know, it was it was neat. And Dad was there, you know, and him and my dad obviously had been friends forever. And uh, he said, yeah, he called me and told me how proud he was of you and all that. And I said, wait a second. He did, really? And he goes, yeah, he did. And I go, Bobby, why didn't he tell me? Why would he not tell me? He goes, well, you want me to tell you why? And I said, absolutely I do. He said, because he's in that wheelchair and he's pissed off because he wanted to be the one driving the car. And he couldn't drive it. And it just all my life made sense to me at that point when Bobby told me that. Because that was all what it was is my dad was so mad that he was stuck in that wheelchair and he couldn't do what I was doing. He wanted to, but he couldn't. And, uh, the relationship with my father really got a lot better from that point going forward. It was, it was really a good turning point, And I credit a lot of that to Bobby to really putting that together. Well, you're, and if I could hit on your father just for a moment, I, I never met the man. I hear great things through you and Bobby Allison that. But your father being tied to a wheelchair, he, he overcame a lot of adversities to have a big effect on motorsports, didn't he? Oh, he really did. I mean, he did a lot of uh, a lot of ingenuity stuff for drag racing, for all kinds of racing. Uh, uh, you know, he was, you know, the first to do, like I said, the roller cams. He was the first to do the zoomy headers. He was the first to do a bunch of different things. And he really loved being an innovator. He was a he was an engineer and an innovator is what he was, and so he enjoyed doing that. And but and then I grew up around that, which was neat. Whether it was on cars or boats or whatever, I you know me seeing that, I learned quite a bit from my dad about uh, you know about cars and engineering and fixing things and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and that helped me because probably from the time I was about ten years old, the first thing I remember the screen door broke at the house. Well, you know, in my parents' house, the screen door broke. And my dad says, hey, Doug, fix the screen door. And I said, Dad, uh, I don't know how to fix the screen door. And he said, well, take the screen off there and hop on your bike and ride down to the hardware store and get that guy down there to show you how to fix it and put it back and, you know, bring it back and put it up. And so I did. I didn't know anything about it, but I went down. The guy at the store showed me how to do it. I came back. I put the door up. My dad said, see, I told you you could do that. Don't ever forget it. You can do it. Even if you don't know how to do it, you've got to figure it out. And so, you know, it just kind of taught me, and he taught me about just, you know, putting your nose to the grindstone and figuring it out and working hard, and, and uh, it, you know, generally it pays off. You either get that gene or you don't. You know, like my, my father was that guy, too. He was an engineer. My brother is an engineer. I'm, I I talk into a microphone. You know what I mean? I don't know how to fix a screen door, either. <laughs> You're a sound engineer. You're a sound engineer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but see, you you have lay, way less stress than all those guys that think they got to know how everything. Right? Well, I do now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Doug, what in drag racing? What have you seen that in in the top fuel ranks? Because that's where you're well known at and know everybody from. And 
what has changed in that world? Has anything changed from when Doug Zilla was on that burn down day? I mean, in regards to cars, the way things are done. And, and one other question, and this is a two-part question. I'm all into two-part questions today. It's okay. Yeah, well, I, I, people ask me to ask these questions. I forget to write them down Then I think about. It. So let's start with this. What is the difference in drag racing when it's elapsed time versus speed? It's because at one yeah. time you can see cars that run faster. They don't win the race. And the speed, Tell explain elapsed time and overall mile per hour. Is that, is that, that's the right question, isn't it, Jeff? Jeff don't know. He's like. You know what I'm talking sure, about. No, it is. It is. Yeah. See, I've got the that look on my face is, like somebody just asked that me was to a, fix a that screen That was an engineering question. <laughs> yeah, I'm oh, sorry. You know what? I, I I explained this to David Poole. I don't even know if you remember David Poole years ago. Yeah. And the, all the, all, you know, he was a NASCAR guy forever and the Charlotte Observer neat guy. And he said, Doug, I finally got him to cover drag racing. I'm, I'm like, Poole, I'm here in Charlotte. People want to know about drag racing. Can, can you help me cover, you know, let's cover drag racing in the Charlotte Observer. And he said, well, Doug, first you need to explain drag racing to me. I don't understand it. And I said, well, David, it's real easy. We've got two cars. I'm going to race you. We're going to start here at this point. We're going to race down there to that point, and whoever gets their first wins. And he goes, you know what? I really like that. <laughs> so, that so that's it, you know. And, and, and it's elapsed time. There's reaction time, there's elapsed time, and there's mile per hour. Those are the three biggest factors on the drag race. So the reaction time is the amount of time it takes either the driver, well, a combination of the driver and the car to react to the, basically the starting light. Then you've got your elapsed time, which is the time from the time the car leaves the starting line until it triggers the, uh, the clock at the end of the track. So there you go there. The speed is what's calculated in the last 66 feet of the track. They average your speed over that last 66 feet. That's your mile per hour. So you can have a slower elapsed time or a quicker elapsed time and still lose to the other car if they had a quicker mile per hour. You know, say they, I ran 330 miles an hour, the other car ran 317 miles an hour, but yet I lost because I was catching them at the end. I was going faster at the end, but I didn't get to the finish line first. Drag racing is all about who gets to the finish line first. All these years about being around drag racing, and I never knew the mile per hour came in the last 66 I was feet. told there would be no math today. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I swear to God, I, I, I know guys in the drag racing world, and I've been kind of crazy or kind of almost embarrassed to say, well, I don't understand it, and now I just got the answer, so thanks for explaining So that then the us. next question I, that I might have for you is, uh, what can you explain the feeling? All right, so there's your reaction time. Boom, there goes the light. You're hammering down, getting ready to go 300 miles an hour in, you know, three and a half or four seconds or whatever. What does that feel like inside the car? You know, the acceleration on the cars absolutely is the most unbelievable feeling you could ever feel. And I don't know how to explain it any other way besides this. You're sitting in a stop sign. You're sitting there standing still. And a truck, a big 18-wheeler truck comes and rear-ends you going 100 miles an hour. That's pretty much about what it feels like. Wow. <laughs> I had an idea yeah, that what I, a fun. <laughs> I had an idea that it was kind of violent. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's you, yeah. you know what's crazier about that? 
he signs up and likes to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, oh, yeah, the speed, that. you know, the engines make over 10,000 horsepower, and they go zero to 100 miles an hour in about three quarters of a second, and zero to 300 miles an hour in about three seconds. So the acceleration is absolutely unbelievable. It's about seven Gs of acceleration. And then when you pull the parachutes to stop, it deaccelerates at about seven Gs. So there's a lot going on. And in that four seconds going down the track, and Mike, you could relate to this from being a racer, the time of the driver in the car, it might take me five minutes to talk to the crew chief and tell him about what happened going down the track because your brain is really, you're just in the groove. You're in, you're in the zone. And you're, you're, you know, when I was doing this every day, right, you, you felt, oh man, I knew it, you know, it dropped a cylinder at about a second into the run and this happened. And then, you know, a push rod broke or the tires came loose a little bit and I grabbed the hold of the brake to try and get the tires hooked back up. All these things happen. And, but in your mind, it's going slow, even though it's going fast when you're outside the car. So it's, it's a really, really neat thing, how your body works and how your brain can get accustomed to going at that yeah. extra fast speed. Well, let's come back Great in answer. a moment, and <laughs> let's talk about land speed racing and brakes. Jeff? Let's do it. We're, okay. ta- we're talking to NHRA Hall Wait. of Famer Doug Herbert. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're having a good time with NHRA Hall of Famer Doug Herbert. Mike, take it away. Well, Jeff, Doug, as we went to break, we were talking, Jeff and I were sitting here talking some engineering questions. He's such an advanced mechanical engineer. But, (laughs) you know, there was a time back where drag racers ran a quarter mile. I thought they still did. Well, let me say everybody did. There is still, I think the pro stock ranks still run a quarter mile. But the top fuel and funny cars only run 1,000 feet. On a quarter mile track, they stop it at. But it's got to be close to a quarter mile, right? But, but, huh? Well, a thousand feet. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you for the math of what a quarter mile oh, is. Well, again, I was told there would be do, no math. Do you know who the last person? Thirteen twenty. Thirteen hundred twenty feet in a quarter mile. Okay, gotcha. Do you know okay. the first per or last person to win on a quarter mile NHRA racetrack? And do you know why they switched? I don't have that answer. No. I bet you if you talk to Doug Zilla, he might be able to tell us that. I'm guessing that you're asking me the question because it was Doug Herbert, right? Uh, bingo, uh, Jed's set, a millionaire. You set me up. <laughs> See? Yeah, well, Doug, tell us why they, uh, NHRA stopped uh, top fuel cars and funny cars from racing a quarter-mile racetrack. Well, so, yeah, so to answer that question is in uh, 2008, uh, terrible – crash happened. Scott Coletta, uh, Scott Coletta is a son of uh, drag racing legend, Connie Coletta. Uh, Scott got killed in a, just a terrible crash at Englishtown, New Jersey. And uh, they immediately were trying to figure out what can we do to either slow the cars down or make them safer because the cars, you know, they're over 330 miles an hour. And a lot of the tracks that we were running on were tracks built in the fifties when the cars were going less than 200 miles an hour, right? Now they're going over 330 and just just simply couldn't stop them fast enough. And that was a little bit the case that happened with Scott. A lot of, you know, it was a chain of events that happened with him. Um, But we lost Scott Coletta, and uh, the NHRA decided, okay, we've got to make a change. 
you know, and we're going to figure out what this change is. Well, what they did was they changed the length of the track for the nitro burning cars from 1,320 feet, which is a quarter mile, which they had always been running a quarter mile since the start of drag racing, to 1,000 feet. So they shortened the racetrack up 320 feet, which what they did was created an extra 320 feet of shutdown area and also slowed the cars down a little bit in the process. So uh, so to answer the trivia question, the last top field racer to ever win a quarter mile drag race, that would be Doug Herbert. Hey, whoa. Cool. Ding, 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 yeah. ding. Uh, no more calls, please. We have a winner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, the, you know, the reason for that is a, is a tragedy. And Scott was my really good buddy, um, uh, you know, and I, I think a lot of the Coletta family and, uh, you know, the, the losing Scott at that race in English Town in 2008 was just uh, unbelievable and terrible. And, and, uh, you know, I think just like in NASCAR, right, you when things, terrible tragedies like that happen, all of a sudden it prompts all the racers and the sanctioning body to figure out, okay, what can we do to make the sport safer, right? That's what happened after Dale Earnhardt, right? Everybody started wearing Hans devices and, uh, you know, all these different safety things that happen as tragedies happen. And, and uh, you know, I think after that happened with Scott, there's quite a few different safety things that evolved and have, and have happened but yeah to end you know to that at the end of the day that's you know that's it quarter, the nitro cars only run a thousand feet now instead of 1320 feet talking about tragedies we're going to come back in a moment and talk about something that's affected both of us but in a quick note you've been involved in a new project it's not a new project you've been doing this for a long time you love going fast you're you're super fast mr fast and <laughs> you were talking about bonneville early in our conversation about being a california west coast racer and uh i was i was kind of a storage facility for a while to your land speed record car so yeah Jeff, doug is going to uh he's been working on this for a while but he's going to try to run 500 mile an hour no kidding on the salt holy smokes doug tell us about and another it. and we've got and we've got more uh, nascar connections there with that so yeah I'm, i've been building this car so uh so my dad i wanted to do a project with my dad my dad was getting older i wanted to do something with him and i called him up one day after watching a movie there's a movie called the world's fastest indian anthony hopkins it's a pretty good movie i don't know if any of you guys have ever seen it uh, I mean, you know anthony hopkins right yeah yeah, so there's a movie called The World's Fastest Indian, and it's not an Indian like, it's, it's, it's an Indian motorcycle. So, the, but the movie, <laughs> did I do good sound effects there? Yeah, that was great. I'm a sound yeah, engineer, too. And, you didn't even know it. And so politically correct, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, any rate, I watched this movie, and I called my dad up. I said, Dad, let's build a Bonneville car. That'll be our project. You and me, we're going to build a Bonneville car. We're going to go to Bonneville and set some records. He goes, well, what class? I said, unlimited streamliner, the world's fastest, the world's fastest car. And he goes, now that is something that I would be interested in. So um, pretty neat. We started working on the car, working on the project. And my dad actually had the fastest car in 1950, ooh, I think 51, 52, 53. He set a whole bunch of records at Bonneville. And back in those days, all the records were held by the Germans. Uh, the Germans actually held almost all of the records. They built the Autobahn, and they had the Auto Union cars. Basically, the you know the Nazi government was was wanted to have every record in the world for everything, and uh, all the automotive records were German. And then these kids from Southern California went out there and busted a bunch of German records. So that was neat. I remember my dad told me he goes, "Yeah, but we beat Hitler, you know, out there. That was pretty cool." <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, so back to this project. 
we started working on the car. And so and then it was, okay, is it going to be a one-engine car, a two-engine car, a three-engine car, a four-engine car, two-wheel drive, four-wheel drive? Is the car, you know, the driver's going to sit in the front of the car? The driver's going to sit in the back of the car? How's it going to be engineered? What kind of engines are we going to use to power the car? So we kind of started coming, you know, figuring out all these things and started putting parts together. We finally decided we need a two-engine car. The engines are going to be counter-rotating, so there's no torque uh, to try and twist the car. And the car needed to be four-wheel drive so that we could get enough traction to accelerate it up to 500 miles an hour in the course, which is only five miles long. So we, we're coming up with all these things, and uh, I you know, had differentials built and all these different things we're building. And uh, one day, I, I, as I've got this mock-up at my shop, my friend Ray Evernham comes by. So, right, NASCAR guys, everybody knows Ray Evernham, right? Ray comes by. And he looks at this, and he goes, Doug, what are you building? I said, oh, I'm building the Bonneville car. He said, what, what, uh, I mean, what, what class? What is this thing going to do? And I said, unlimited streamliner, man. We're going 500 miles an hour. And Ray was like, well, who designed it? I said, well, me and my dad did. He goes, uh, I'd like to talk to your dad. <laughs> and so we went inside. We dialed up my dad on the phone, and we, you know, it's going to be like a five-minute conversation for anybody that knows Ray, right? He gets straight to the point, and, and my dad was the exact same as Ray. Straight to the point, let's, you know, we don't need to talk for a long time. Let's just get this done. We sat on the phone for probably an hour, and uh, it was, had a really neat conversation. We hung up the phone, and Ray said, man, your dad is one smart guy. He said, I want to be involved in that car. Let's, uh, let's figure it out. I'll, I can help you with suspension because i know about suspension you're an old drag racer you don't know anything about suspension and i said well you got me there you're right and he said and aerodynamics uh, i can help you with aerodynamics because i've got engineers that are working for me and, and i can help you with aerodynamics so ray became involved with the with the project and just a really great guy and 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 my friend uh and uh we were really making big progress because our plan was to go run the car and uh tragically less than a year later my dad got sick and passed away and ray's dad got sick and passed away so it was kind of going to be a project we were doing with our dads our dads uh we both we lost both of our dads and so the project kind of stalled along and uh it's been sitting but and actually during the a couple of years of that time it was sitting over at mike's shop i stored the car over at his shop so that i was, was telling that was, everybody it was my car and i was going to run 500 mile an hour and <laughs> yeah. I, I was soliciting sponsors and contributions to something that wasn't even mine you ought to see the money i've made on this deal so far <laughs> so where are we Man. with the project now where are we with the project well, now? so the cars uh it's actually moving along a little bit i've got the engines are over at dorton's over at uh, at, uh keith dorton's over here and he's, he's uh helping figure out how these engines are going to be built they're supercharged v10 engines that are going to make about 2500 horsepower each there's mm. two of them uh so <laughs> dorton is uh you know he's obviously a really really good engine expert he's working on that and help uh, gonna help iron that out and and uh, all the electronics that go along with it and all that. I'm an old hot rod guy. I don't understand all the electronics. So, so can I tell you, the electronic, the engineering end of this whole deal? Yeah. It needs a quarter million dollars to finish up. Oh. So so we need just some corporate yeah. support. But I, I need to jump off of that because we only got about five minutes left, and I don't want to lose this. Uh, you were talking about tragedy earlier with Scott Coletto. And Doug and I have become very good friends over the years because we both had – family losses we've lost son i lost a son he's lost two sons and doug took that that loss in his life and turned it into a, an incredible organization in tribute to his children called breaks and it's world-renowned 
Doug, t inform and tell everybody how what all transpired there and what breaks is. Well, you know, and, and like you said, Mike, it's unfortunate that uh, sometimes bad situations bring people together, and um, uh, you know, I think that's the case with you and I. We become we become really really good friends the last few years, and, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, January 26, 2008, uh, I lived up here at Lake Norman, you know, Cornelius, North Carolina. And uh, I was gone away at a race in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, my boys took off from the house. They were going to go up to McDonald's, get something to eat. And, uh, you know, doing what boys do, you know, and not, I mean, stuff that I'd done a hundred times. Anyways, he was driving too fast. He was being reckless. Uh, my son, John, crashed the car and we lost uh, John and James in a car crash right there on Jaton Road in Cornelius. Um, and, uh, on that day, January 26, 2008, as I came home and I'm looking at the crash and I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, I, I, I can't believe this happened. I didn't know at the time that car crashes were the number one cause of death for teenagers. And I just decided that, Hey, the one you know, the two things actually that I love the most, number one, my boys, number two, cars, um, they caused a big problem for me. And I decided, okay, well, what I want to do is I want to teach these teenagers about being safe drivers. And there's a place to go fast. We go to the racetrack and go fast. We don't go fast on the street. And I got together with some of my law enforcement friends and my racing friends. And uh, initially, my goal was to teach my boys' friends about being safer and more responsible drivers. And uh, so in 2008, we trained about 50 teenagers and uh, was really, really good. Bruton donated the, the Bruton and Marcus, the Smith family, let us use the speedway. Uh, the pit area at the drag strip, actually, we used that for uh, doing this training for the drivers, for the team drivers. And, uh, I required the parents to come because I figured, you know what, parents, I was guilty as anything. I probably wasn't the best, uh, you know, example for my kids going along either. And so I wanted the parents to come because I figured we could teach them a thing or two as well. Well, it kind of, those 50 teenagers that came through the 50 families, I started getting more calls from those parents and, and saying, Hey, I got another kid coming along when you can do the class again. So I did another class. And uh, as we did another class, every time we did a class, I had, we trained 50 kids and I had 150 families call me and want me to do another class. So it kind of started, it started growing. And at this time it was just, it was basically just Doug doing, you know, what, uh, what he felt compelled to do and uh, make sure that another parent didn't get a call that their teenagers weren't killed in a car crash. And that was my goal. And uh, since then, we've got some really great people involved with the charity. Uh, Dick Pacer, uh, Mike obviously knows Dick. Dick's the chairman of the board now. We have a board. You know, it's a legitimate 501c3 organization. And uh, we, uh, we've now trained over 50,000 families all over the country. And uh, we work with the University of North Carolina. And they did a five-year study that showed the teenagers that have been through our breaks training program are actually 64% less likely to be involved in a car crash than teenagers that haven't been through the program. So to me, that made all the difference in the world, knowing that my boys' lives are making a difference with other families and, uh, you know, to make sure that uh, another parent doesn't get that phone call, that, that uh, their kids aren't going to be able to come home because they got, you know, they were lost in a car crash. And I'm the father of four children. Every one of them, every one of them had some sort of an incident within one year of getting their driver's license. 
Every really? one of them. They yep. wrecked a car, whether it be a minor accident in a parking lot or one of them got T-boned in the side, and she was extremely lucky not to get hurt. But uh, every one of them. So that, that, that's a big deal. That, yeah. that's a huge deal. Doug and yep. and and, the, and explain Doug what brakes stands for the verb the the letters of brakes. Yeah, well, I asked my boy's friends I, the the couple of days after their the crash that we lost him. I went to the school and I I got in front of all the teenagers. I said, guys, we're going to do something here, and we're going to change your life, and we're going to change the lives of teenagers that are coming after you, and uh, we're going to teach everybody about being safer drivers. And I need you all to help me come up with a name for this organization. So. The teenagers, my boy's friends, started uh, started thinking about it, and they actually came up with that name, Breaks. Well, Breaks is an acronym that is be responsible and keep everyone safe. That's the acronym. So my boy's friends came up with that, and uh, it's just unbelievable. We could have paid an advertising agency a million bucks to come up with something that good, and they wouldn't have been able right. to do it. But these yeah. kids came up with it, and uh, you know, it's obviously it's more meaningful because it was it was uh, developed by uh, you know by my boy's friends. Well, Doug Herbert, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's uh, we, we ended on a high-low note, note at the same time. Breaks organization, everybody go out and search it out. Where do they find Breaks at, Doug? How do, how do you find it? Yeah, so uh, go to the Internet, putonthebreaks.org. Yeah, putonthebreaks. Putonthebreaks.org. Uh, loved hearing about your career. I've learned things that I didn't know anything about. Jeff Kent, the engineering background that you presently have, did you learn anything today? I feel smarter today, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I feel smarter for hanging out with you guys. All right. <laughs> well, I'm very fortunate. I sure I can't tell you how much I appreciate it uh, that you guys have me on the show. Jeff, it's great to talk to you. Mike, as always, uh, you know, I'm fortunate enough. We get to hang out quite often, and I, and I appreciate every time. And there he goes. He's NHRA Hall of Famer Doug Herbert. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.